Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. The actor Dana Andrews worked with some incredibly famous directors, including John Ford, Otto Preminger, William Wyler, and Elia Kazan. He also played romantic leads alongside some of the great beauties of the modern screen, such as Joan Crawford, Elizabeth Taylor, Greer Garson, Maureen O'Hara, and Jean Tierney. And yet he remains an underrated actor, an actor's actor. Hopefully Carl Rollison's biography, entitled Hollywood Enigma, Dana Andrews, is about to change that. Hi, Carl. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could kick things off by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Yes. Um, well, I, was, uh, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and went to Michigan State University as an undergraduate and uh, began as a major in drama and then uh, got very interested in writing and literature and uh, eventually went to graduate school at the University of Toronto and did a dissertation on William Faulkner. And at the time, I didn't realize this, but uh, I was interested in Faulkner's, uh, what I call, uses of the past, uh, really his, his vision of history. And uh, what I ultimately realized after I got my uh, degree and finished my dissertation was it wasn't history per se, it really was biography. What really interested me was how his characters, particularly in a novel like Absalom Absalom, spent so much time brooding over the past and thinking about the correct interpretation of the people that they were interested in and so on. And that's really when I began to think about that, and then I got interested in uh, the work of Norman Mailer, and I read his biography of Merrill Monroe, and what I really liked about his Monroe book is that he didn't just write about her, but he wrote about the difficulties of biography. And I suddenly realized, oh, that's really the kind of writing I want to uh, do. It's not literary criticism per se, but it's this mixture. And because of my, my interest in drama, too, I see a very strong connection between drama and biography, I think, the the actor, of course, is interpreting a character and, in a sense, impersonating someone else. And that's very much what the biographer does. Hmm. So you've obviously written a lot of biographies. What drew you to the story of Dana Andrews? Dana Andrews uh, was... Uh, all that I knew about Dana Andrews was the film that made him a star, Laura, this film noir. Uh, and I loved that film. Uh, it was a film that uh, I would watch uh, almost every year. Uh, I've probably seen that film a dozen times. And uh, it also reminded me a great deal, I have to say, uh, the character of the detective of my father, who was a plainclothes detective in Detroit. 
and so there was a real sort of autobiographical connection. But what what happened was I didn't set out uh, to write a biography of Dana Andrews, but I'm editor of the Hollywood Legends series that the University Press of Mississippi publishes. And uh, one of Dana's daughters actually contacted the press and asked them if they knew of anyone who might be interested in doing a biography of Dana Andrews. And so I was called, someone at the press called me, and, and asked me as editor of the series whether I knew anyone, and I said, as a matter of fact, I do. And they said, who? I said, me. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a gut reaction. I mean, I, I really didn't know uh, anything, really, about his life. I just knew that he was, uh, he just seemed immediately to me to be an attractive subject. And uh, the next thing I did was uh, call uh, Dana's daughter, who really wanted this book to be done, and we talked about biography and how I did biography and what I proposed to do with her, her writing about her father's life. And she, she and I explained to her, I, I work very independently. I certainly wanted to interview them and look at any papers that they had. And uh, she was completely accessible, as was her sister Kathy and, and their brother Stephen. So I, I really lucked out. I was very fortunate. Yeah. Um, this kind of ties into that. What sources were most helpful to you? Obviously, his family was a big one. Yes, and he himself, although he died in 1992, was the biggest help of all. Because unlike a lot of actors who don't necessarily write a lot or aren't even that articulate outside of their their, their actual uh, acting, uh, Dana Andrews kept a diary, and he was a magnificent letter writer. Uh, and, of course, that's a boon to a biographer to have a subject uh, who's not just a performer, but who, who thinks about his performing and, and gives you a, a record of it. So that in particular and the, the uh, openness of his family, uh, there weren't any sort of off-the-record subjects that I had to deal with, uh, made it just a, a work of, for me, a great intensity and also a pleasure. So throughout the book, you use different versions of the subject's name. Can you explain the yeah. reasoning behind this a bit? Yes, yes. Uh, he, he was born uh, in Mississippi in a small town actually called Don't, D-O-N-T, Mississippi. They thought it would be funny, you know, for people to write on the envelope, Don't Miss. Uh, that town no longer exists. And he was born uh, uh, Carver Dana Andrews. The Carver came from a professor, and the Dana came from a professor. Both professors were uh, admired greatly by Dana's father, who studied at a seminary, and uh, he uh, sort of honored these two great teachers of his by giving his son that name. So the Dana Andrews we knew grew up in Mississippi and then in several small towns in Texas, and well into his 20s, really, uh, anybody who was a friend of his uh, called him Carver. Uh, and it was only when he got to college uh, and began to think seriously about an acting career uh, that he decided that that middle name, which until then he had never really, really liked very much, uh, he thought it would be distinctive to be called Dana Andrews rather than Carver. But so much of his identity is wrapped up in Texas and his upbringing that it seemed important to me to call him in the first part of the uh, biography Carver. Uh, you also use the first person in telling this story, not constantly, but at times, uh, which is pretty yeah. rare for biography. What made you decide to use this? 
Yes, uh, using first-person biography is very tricky, and I think I used it more in this book than any of my other books. Uh, I think because I felt so personally involved in the story, and it's always been a kind of frustration for me, and maybe for other biographers as well, when you're writing a narrative, people want to write, they want to know about your subject. They don't really want to know about you. They didn't come to the book because they want to know about you. On the other hand, if, if, you, think of a, if you think of a novel, for example, and you have a first-person narrator, you've got to know about that narrator. You've got to know at least something about that narrator to really sort of evaluate the story. So it seems to me biography, at least some biographies, it's like the biographer has, you know, one hand behind his back or her back because uh, that that other part of the story, in the sense the autobiography, can't be told uh, because most readers, unless the the biographer is a terrific writer like Norman Mailer and is a public personality already, it's very difficult. But I thought the way to introduce myself into the story was to say a little bit about, I do say at the beginning, I, I mentioned my father and my father's work, and I mentioned, in fact, uh, talking with his daughter, uh, Susan, about her father and her giving me a version of his Texas background, which turned out, much to her amazement and, and to mine as well, not to be very accurate. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, the, 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 the biographer's process of finding out the story, I thought, would be of some interest to readers. Usually what biographers do is they write an essay after they finish the book, because I think they do have all this pent-up feeling about their own involvement in the story, but they feel it's inappropriate to put it in the book. So then you see the article, you know, in, in a magazine or a newspaper about how did I come to write about Virginia Woolf and that sort of thing. And it's rare, very rarely in the biographical narrative itself. And for years... I've been wrestling with, well, how can I do that? And I think some readers like that, and I think there are probably readers who, who just assume, well, I don't want to hear about you. I just, I just want to hear about Dane Andrews. For what it's worth, I thought it worked very well. It, well, it jumps think, out yeah. at me because I, I read a lot of biography and I know how rare it is, but it was, it was not intrusive in any way, and I thought it worked really, really well. Well, that's, that's, of course, what I would love to hear, because what I hope is that the reader latches on to that, you know, my own involvement in it, and yet I hope not to overdo it right. and, and, and uh, to have a right, uh, the right sense of proportion about the story. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a bit about uh, Carver's early life, his time in Mississippi and Texas? Yes. Uh, he grew up in a very large family, uh, eight brothers and sisters, uh, eight brothers, I should say, and uh, it turned out to be only one sister. There were other other uh, uh, daughters in the family, but they died quite young in infancy, and in fact had a tremendous impact on 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 Dana uh, in, in terms of his own sort of feelings later in life. Uh, he really took care of his sister Mary after he became a famous uh, movie star. So I think that 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 early tragedy, the loss of children, had a lot to do with shaping his own desire to be a father, and, and it, it turned out to have uh, you know, two lovely daughters. Uh, he was part of a very uh, religious family. Now, his father was not only a Baptist preacher, but his mother, if anything, was even more devout than the father. You know, we're talking about a period, uh, Dana Andrews was born in 1909 uh, in the Deep South, and uh, this is the period when, in a sense, film is just beginning, especially in these small towns in the South. 
uh, when people are just beginning to see the first motion pictures, and of course they're silent. Uh, and there's a great deal of suspicion of actors and actresses in the movie industry, and in fact, uh, not just Dana's father, but many Baptist preachers uh, in from their pulpits fulminated against the motion picture industry and its sort of seduction of young men and women, and in fact, uh, uh, Dana's father, Charles Forrest Andrews, actually had a resolution passed in a church in Rockdale, Texas, where he was the pastor, which forbid uh, the children to go to the theater. And so Dana grew up with this kind of um, uh, prejudice, hostility toward the movie business. But, uh, like a lot of young people, he, he rebelled. He was not rebellious in the sense of having a hard, giving his father a hard time, uh, Dana was, I guess you'd say, rather devious. He'd sneak out the back door and go to the motion pictures. And the town, the townspeople, when he was in Uvalde, Texas, for example, uh, the, that was the big joke about the preacher's son who, who slipped out the back and went to the movies. And Dana became absolutely mesmerized uh, by the motion picture screen. He would watch uh, actors like Ronald Coleman, who was both a great silent movie star and then a great star in the talkies and motion pictures. And Dana, uh, he was an usher. He, then he became a projectionist in the movie theater. And he began to watch these actors. And uh, during the silent era, 1925, 1926, he would bring in recordings and do, in a sense, his own soundtrack, key to various scenes in the motion picture. He really, in a sense took himself to film school. He was supposed to be an accountant. That's what his father wanted him to be, if not a Baptist minister, be an accountant, go into business. And as Dana said in a wonderful interview he did, um, he said, you know, I didn't want to be an accountant. I didn't want to live my life with that, like that. And uh, he really grew up with dreams of stardom. Can you tell us the significance of the film's wings for him? Yeah, Wings was a, a really important uh, film. Uh, it's a William Wellman film. It's an action film. It's a, a film of daring do, but it's also got some wonderful acting in it. Uh, Gary Cooper, who was just getting his start, he started as an extra in films in 1923, and, and but already you know, three years later, he was get, getting into one or two scenes, and he plays this doomed airman in Wings, and he makes this entrance, he comes into a tent, and although the, the ostensible uh, stars of the film are Buddy Rogers uh, and Richard Arlen, uh, when you see this, uh, you, you can just, you can predict, you, it's in retrospect, of course, but you can, you can see the screen power of Gary Cooper, and I think the young Dana Andrews, or Carver, as people are still calling him then, looks at this scene, and it's, it's not just, wow, this is acting, but it, you know, this is the way to make your mark, in a sense. This is the way to make your entrance into life. So who is Norma? Norma. Norma was his childhood sweetheart. He met her when they were barely 16 years old, both in high school. She was a 
very bright, intelligent, lovely woman, uh, young woman who he fell in love with. And uh, they just thought of themselves as, you know, going, they were going to be together forever. Uh, and uh, they, they were very close to each other throughout high school and college, although uh, Dana eventually dropped out of school. And her family, they were a little worried about Carver Dana Andrews because he had a lot of, uh, as I found out, he had a lot of incompletes on his college record. Uh, he didn't seem to be serious enough. Uh, and uh, they, they certainly wanted her to marry a man who was going to settle down. And he was in Huntsville, Texas. He was 1,500 miles away from New York City and almost the same number of miles away from Los Angeles, California. And it was almost unimaginable to people in Huntsville, Texas, to his own family unimaginable. He was going to become a movie star? That just seemed ridiculous. They could see he had talent, because uh, he was appearing in plays, and he certainly had a winning personality. And my God, was he handsome. That's what everybody said. He was certainly the most handsome boy in town. Uh, and the girls always asked his brothers when there were parties, is Carver coming? Because that's who they really wanted to see. So uh, he certainly had the makings of a movie star, but it just seemed so, you know, it, it, it just seemed improbable. So Norma really had an uphill battle with her family. They liked Carver. They liked him well enough. Who, who didn't like him? Everyone liked Carver Dane Andrews. He was a wonderful person to be with the life of the party. But as a husband, as a provider, uh, well, he hitchhiked to California in 1930 in the height of the Depression, determined to become a movie star, and he begins writing Norma long letters about, you know, how tough it is. He's digging ditches. He's driving a school bus. He's picking figs. He's not acting, uh, and she has to tell her family something, and she waits, and she waits, and she waits, and finally he writes her a letter, and he's actually has, he's met someone else. He doesn't say that to her. He just says, I think it's wrong of me to, to, you know, to make you wait for me. And she's expecting, because she expected him to come you know, home like the white knight and sweep her off her feet and then take her back to California with him. And he was just getting nowhere. Uh, and he thought it was just unfair uh, to, to keep her holding on. I think she would have held on. Uh, and he, it left a mark on his life. They, they remained friends, actually, through the rest of her life. She died before he did. Uh, and uh, it got all turned around in the family, though. That was, that was the, the point about Susan telling me the story, because the story that Dana's daughter Susan knew, the one that had been passed down to her, so to speak, was that Norma's family had rejected, had spurned her father, uh, and in a sense, they had, uh, but Norma had offered at one point to somehow get out to California, although she never did, did do that, actually. Uh, but he was really the one who called it off uh, when he met um, Janet Murray, uh, a woman who was involved in community theater uh, in Van Nuys, California. And Dana began to, and now he was, People were beginning to call him Dana. Dana was a huge hit in community theater. 
Uh, and, and as soon as that begins to happen around 1934-1935, he, he, he's not ready to go back home because he's not a success yet. It looks like he might be, but community theater is still a long way from starring in Hollywood films. So how did he break into Hollywood? Well, what happened was, and this, is, this, was, this was, in a sense, by merit. Uh, he went to the Pasadena Playhouse, which was a community theater, but it was a well-known community theater. It was, it was almost like a, a kind of like a farm team is for a major league baseball. That is, there were people who, uh, people like Victor Jory, for example, a very fine actor, who uh, uh, went to the Pasadena Playhouse, and that became a vehicle because Hollywood talent scouts and so on, we go to Pasadena Playhouse performances to, to take a look at the actors and to see if they were movie material. Well, Dana showed up one, one Sunday night. They had what were called these open tryouts, uh, and he tried out. He had been taking a lot of singing lessons. He had a wonderful baritone voice, and at one time was seriously thinking of being, about being an opera singer, I think because he thought that was more respectable, at least in his family's eyes. His mother certainly said, oh, I would love to, you know, if you sang opera, that, that sounds very good to her. Uh, but he went to these tryouts because uh, someone had also told him, you're more likely uh, to get work as an actor, some kind of work, than you are as a singer. Uh, and so he tried out, and uh, they, they, they liked his audition. He started right at the bottom, the proverbial, you know, spear carrier in a Shakespeare production, and just worked his way up, role by role, until by 1937, he was starting to get, get no, notices, and MGM did a screen test. That went nowhere. But by 1938, uh, he, was, he had become so accomplished, a member of the uh, Samuel Goldwyn organization went to one of his uh, performances, and uh, it was on his recommendation that the producer, Samuel Goldwyn, finally signed uh, Dana Andrews to a movie contract in 1939. So it took him almost a decade to even get a movie contract, and then another good three and a half years before you could really call him a movie star. You mentioned that he was unlike a lot of actors and that he really didn't invent any elements of his Hollywood persona. Um, I think the examples were Raymond Burr, who invented his war record, and then um, Marilyn yeah. Monroe, who invented her whole childhood, basically. Uh, and that he was usually depicted as he was. Why? Was there a reason for that? Yeah, it was extraordinary. Uh, I think the reason why I found this, because I've done a biography of Marilyn Monroe, and you're, you're quite right, especially if you read the fan magazines. I mean, they're just so full of misinformation, partly fed to them by the studios and Marilyn Monroe herself. And Dana Andrews never did that. Um, and I think uh, it had to do with the kind of person he was. Even though he had reacted against the, the uh, Baptist preacher background, and, and uh, by the end of his life, he called himself a humanist. He had no religion whatsoever in that sense. Uh, he, um, he wanted to be authentic. He wanted to be an authentic actor. Uh, he, wanted, uh, the, the, he wanted really the public to, in a sense, recognize him for what he was, which was a very decent, sincere, authentic person. And so early on, uh, the movie magazines decided, well, I guess that's the angle. 
here's a movie star who's not going to get divorced. Here's a movie star who's not going to have a lot of affairs. Here's a movie star that really likes being at home and playing with his kids. And so you'd see these photographs of him at home playing with his kids, uh, and it was true. Uh, that was the remarkable thing, uh, and it's what I found in interviewing not only his children, but friends of his children, and many, many other people who knew Dana Andrews. This was, this was certainly not an act. To give you one example, very early on, even before he married his, his second wife, Mary Todd, the first wife died tragically after only two years of marriage and childbirth. Uh, when he married Mary Todd, uh, be, just before he married her, the studio, the Goldman studio, wanted him to do what most male movie stars at the time did, which was date a lot, take a lot of starlets out and be photographed and get a lot of publicity and so on. And uh, Dana was never very good at this. And finally, because when you were a movie star in 1939 or 1940, you were, you were property. You were the property of the studio. And Dana felt it necessary to ask Samuel Goldwyn, is it okay if I get married? <laughs> is it okay? Uh, and, and Goldwyn actually said, let me think about it. He didn't give him an immediate answer. Uh, and then finally the studio relented after not too long a time. And, and in fact, one of the vice presidents of the Goldwyn studio said to Dana, oh, you might as well get married because you're no good at this dating business. <laughs> So how did he wind up getting the part in Lara? He campaigned for it. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened was he had done some very good work with a, a very good director, Lewis Milestone, who had done one of the first talkies all quiet on the Western Front. And Milestone's uh, sort of claim to fame was he was incredible at getting actors to act together as an ensemble. And he did this marvelous film called The Purple Heart, uh, which Dana stars in as Captain Harvey, these these pilots who are shot uh, shot down in in uh, Japanese occupied China, and uh, so he became very close friends with Lewis Milestone, which was unusual too. Dana was not a big uh, socializer and didn't really have that many friends uh, in Hollywood, but uh, a few directors like Lewis Milestone were, and Milestone was offered. Uh, the opportunity to direct Laura, and I'm still not quite sure why Milestone d didn't want to direct, except the producer was Otto Preminger, and it wasn't easy to work with Otto Preminger. He was very autocratic, and that may have been one reason. At any rate, Milestone read the script, and it was this film noir. It was the story of, of this obsession with Laura, this woman who was supposedly murdered, and this detective who, you know, stands in front of her portrait, gazing longingly at it, and falls in love with it, what everyone thinks is a dead woman. And Milestone read the script, and he said, Dana, this is the role that will make you a star. Well, one of the things that Dana did is he was doing a war film called Wing and a Prayer, which is also a very good film. He has a very good performance in it. And Virginia Zanuck, Daryl Zanuck's wife, uh, saw him in that film. And she said, wow, she said, uh, you're really good. And she had only seen him as the second lead in B pictures, where it was somebody else who always got the girl, usually Tyrone Power, or even Randolph Scott before Dana Andrews. Uh, and Virginia Zanuck was impressed, and she, she talked to Daryl Zanuck and said, you know, 
you ought to consider Dana Andrews. And then Otto Preminger, who was always, you know, adamant that he was right about everything, said, you know, I want Dana Andrews. And Zanuck threw out a lot of other names. Well, how about John Hodiak? You mentioned several uh, actors who were very popular at the time, and, and Preminger stood firm and ultimately got his way. Andrews is often cited as the embodiment of the male mask. Can you explain what this yeah. means in, in relation to Laura and his other work? Yes, the male mask, this, uh, this uh, I- image of uh, a male who uh, really rigidly controls his emotions, uh, where, and where the, the emotion is, is uh, almost hardly visible. In fact, some people who can't see it uh, would sometimes call Dana Andrews a wooden actor, which I think is a lack of perception on their part. But the, this male mask, you see it in Laura, uh, when he obviously he's becoming obsessed with her, but if you look at him, if you look at his mouth, for example, it's just this straight horizontal line. It's like he's keeping a grip on his emotions uh, for a great, for a very long time, uh, and then finally, when she gives him, in a sense, some indication that she finds him attractive, there's just this flicker of a smile. It's like. Um, Micro gestures, micro mannerisms that he he engages in. He he knew, I think, from that that uh, uh, upbringing as being a projectionist and watching those actors, that just the slight move of an eyelid, uh, just changing uh, your your smile slightly or or smiling slightly, uh, conveyed just an incredible uh, amount of emotion so that when the character does feel some emotion, when he does smile, or when finally, when the picture's almost over, he actually kisses Laura, it's, it's like an orgasm. It's, it's, it's so romantic. It's so powerful. But the reason it's powerful is because the mask has suddenly been removed. And uh, to give you one line from early in Laura, uh, when... when uh, um, uh, Waldo Lidecker uh, is uh, uh, taunting the detective. What well, Lidecker is this soigné, sophisticated uh, uh, character played by beautifully, wonderfully by Clifton Webb. It's hard to take your eyes off Clifton Webb in this picture. And and Clifton Webb says to uh, uh, Mark, the detective, uh, to Dana Andrews, uh, don't you... Uh, don't you ever call any women anything other than Danes? Uh, and, you know, and Dana has lines like, yeah, uh, or haven't you ever fallen in love with a woman and not called her a Dame? And, and uh, Dana's character, Mark McPherson, says, well, a Dame, uh, you know, uh, in, in Prospect Heights uh, once got a fox fur off of me. You know, and so he sounds like he's a complete, you know, um, uh, macho. Uh, insensitive oaf, but the film keeps dropping clues. At the very beginning of the movie, for example, uh, Mark McPherson, the detective, walks into Lidecker's sumptuous Manhattan apartment, and he's got these glass cases of these oriental objects, like a museum. And uh, Dana walks in, as Mark McPherson, and he starts to open, slide open this glass case and to to uh, pick up this precious object. And that's when you hear Lidecker's voice. You don't even see Lidecker again warning him, you know, that's very precious, as if this this oafish 
policeman couldn't possibly know. But the very fact that he's intrigued with this object, in fact, shows that he's a kind of connoisseur of beauty before he ever you know, knows anything about Laura. And then there's another wonderful line in the film when uh, Vincent Price, who's playing one of Laura's boyfriends, uh, lies about the music that's being played at a concert. And, and when Dana, uh, Mark McPherson exposes the lie and says, you know, it wasn't, I can't remember, I think, I think uh, Price says it was Brahms. And Dana says, no, it was Sibelius. And, and Vincent Price says, well, you know, it was a concert, I fell asleep. And Dana, as the detective says, yes, I know, I fall asleep at concerts too. You know, and it's almost a throwaway line, but it's, it's, he goes to concerts, so that by the end of the film, it's not, you know, even though Waldo Lidecker has, has, thinks this detective is an oaf, he's in a sense completely misread him. But it only works because there is a mask to begin with. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. Aside from Laura, if we're excluding Laura from this equation, what are the three Dana Andrews movies that we should see and why? Okay, uh, well, we've got to mention um, The Best Years of Our Lives because uh, it was, uh, some people say, his greatest performance. He plays a returning uh, soldier, end of World War II. He was a bombardier, but before the war, he was a what was called a, not a soda clerk, but a soda jerk, uh, to use the term at the time. Uh, and it's played with such authenticity. Now, Dana was not in the war. He certainly wasn't a bombardier. He was never in uniform. Um, but he spent a good deal of the war, a couple reasons why he didn't serve. One was a, a physical uh, problem, but the, but the other was he had a wife and three children uh, and was deferred for quite some time. But he spent virtually the whole war, uh, we haven't talked about his alcoholism, but he was a huge drinker, and he spent a good deal of the war drinking with servicemen. So he really, that performance uh, was really authentic. He really knew the man that he was he was uh, uh, impersonating, so to speak. So everyone mentions that. For, in fact, uh, Frederick March won an Academy Award, uh, Best Actor Award, uh, and if you look at that film now, you have to ask yourself, why did Frederick March win and Dana wasn't even nominated? So people who know Dana Andrews' career often talk about that. It's just an, just an outrage. So you have to mention that. Um, I would also mention a film that was made shortly after Laura, which is called Fallen Angel. Uh, and I think it's just a tremendous performance of Dana's in which he plays a down-and-out drifter. Uh, a con man uh, who uh, essentially marries a woman for her money. And the woman uh, is played by Alice Day. And it, it, a lot of people do not get this film. And, and I just think it's, it's every bit as good as Laura, if not better. And it's also an Otto Preminger film. Uh, and the, the point in the film is that Faye, who's never been married, and <clears throat> most people think of as a dupe, refuses to accept the idea that her husband is a con man. And the Dana Andrews character, there are various things about him where you can see he is redeemable. He does a number of really subtle things 
the way he treats her when they're walking across the street and this bicycle or a car comes along and he takes her arm and some of the banter, the dialogue between them, you can see that even though he's a con man, there's something else in him. So she refuses, absolutely refuses to accept his own version of himself when he finally confesses to her that he's a con man. They go to San Francisco and they're in a hotel, supposedly on their honeymoon, and he's about to bug out on her. Uh, and she goes to the bathroom. She takes a, a bath. And she comes out of the bath. You, you can't see her. I mean, the door is closed, but you know that's what she's doing. And she opens the door slightly and she says, would you hand me a towel? And he hands her a towel. She does this two or three times, very matter-of-factly. What is she doing? She's treating him as her husband. It's, uh, it's fascinating, the psychology of it, because ultimately it dawns on him that this woman loves him for himself, that there really is something to love there. And in a sense, you can't say she makes him fall in love with her, but she, she perceives something in him that, that allows him to redeem himself, so to speak. So I, I, just, I just see that as, you know, a tremendous tremendous performance and and tremendous film by Otto Preminger as well the the direction of it is just great and I guess the third film uh, because it fits so well with this Mayo mask and it really is almost a kind of trilogy Laura Fallen Angel and then Where the Sidewalk Ends uh, Laura's 1944, Fallen Angels, late 1945, early 46, and then Where the Sidewalk Ends is 1950. And you have Dana Andrews, Jean Tierney, who is Laura, uh, in Laura, uh, are reunited. Uh, and he, he again, in a sense, he, he's, he's a policeman again, he's a detective. And his first name is Mark, as if to uh, remind people of Laura and the character. And it's, he's like a Mark who's become even more cynical, jaded, again, uh, uh, seemingly beyond redemption. Uh, and the film, again, is about, uh, through his contact with this, this woman who doesn't know about his past history, uh, but who immediately responds to, to a side of him that he's been reluctant to show to other people, again, the male mask, uh, that brings out this uh, honesty and sincerity and earnestness in him, which was very much a part of Dana Andrews's character. He really relied on his wife, Mary Todd, uh, in, in almost the same way that these characters in these films rely on her. So I'd say those three films. Uh, so we're going to come back to the alcoholism in just a second, because I know that's really yeah, sure. important. But I do want to hit upon um, that he was active in protests against the House Committee on American Activities in the 50s. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Yes, he, um, uh, he was a board member uh, of the Screen Actors Guild uh, beginning in the 1940s. And uh, he knew people like Ronald Reagan extremely well and William Holden, both of whom were very... Uh, well, Reagan was a, a liberal, but he was already beginning to turn conservative in the late 1940s and become a fervent anti-communist. And, and uh, Dana had no history whatsoever in terms of um, popular front groups, you know, his communist-inspired activities and so on. Uh, nevertheless, his politics, I would have to say, were liberal, were leftist. Uh, and uh, he attended many of these meetings, and he saw what happened, which was 
initially, when when the blacklist was proposed, even the Hollywood producers said, this is terrible. Uh, we can't allow politicians to run our business for us. But, of course, they began to look at the box office, and they began to look at, well, and even though people often think of the Hollywood Ten in a sense as heroes, because these screenwriters uh, accused of communist sympathies or of being communist told off the House Committee on Un-American Activities, that really turned out to be counterproductive, uh, because they simply made themselves look like radicals. And, in, a, in, a, in effect, the studio felt rightly or wrongly, it was in a corner, and therefore felt it had no, um, the studios felt that they had no option other than to impose a kind of blacklist. Dana never forgot this. Uh, I don't think it was something that he thought he could do something about, uh, but he, he, he was never he was never fooled into thinking that was the right way to go. I think he, he found that a very regrettable episode in the whole history of the Screen Actors Guild. And he appeared, I should say, he appeared uh, on, nationwide, on a nationwide uh, broadcast, actually quoting the words of his, of, uh, his boss, so to speak, the producer Samuel Goldwyn. Samuel Goldwyn was quite remarkable. He was often called an independent producer, which meant in Hollywood simply he wasn't MGM, he wasn't 20th Century Fox. But Samuel Goldwyn was independent in another sense. He was ready to go to HUAC and also tell them off, and they never called him. That's a missed moment in American history. Can you imagine if a Hollywood producer had gone to to Washington, D.C., and not Humphrey Bogart, you know, not one of these actors, not one of these screenwriters, but a businessman, Samuel Goldwyn, who was known, you know, the Goldwyn Touch, the Goldwyn Pictures. Imagine if Goldwyn had appeared before a congressional committee and told them, that they were full of baloney. <laughs> that would have been amazing. That would have been fantastic. And Goldman was disappointed. And the committee knew that. Huec knew that. That they could not, you know, they could call uh, the head of any other major studio and they would get someone who would co- cooperate, collaborate with them. But they knew that Goldman didn't care. And so they didn't call him. Wow. Someone should it's, reimagine it's that really and make a movie. Story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, someone should make a movie because that, that's a really missed moment in American history. Wow. Um, so, he, as you mentioned, he was an alcoholic. Uh, how did this affect his work? To begin with, it didn't. Uh, and it's a little hard to determine exactly when Dana started drinking, but it seems to be the early 1940s. Uh, I there's some mention of drinking in his diary before then, but it, it doesn't look like a problem, not a, not a serious problem. But he wrote a letter to, to his youngest, uh, a younger brother, not his youngest, but to a younger brother, Charles, in 1943, which is before uh, Laura, before he's going to start Laura, about what a crappy place Hollywood is. There are all these hypocrites here. There's all this vying, you know, this, he was ambitious, but he didn't like the sort of cutthroat competition and so on. And uh, I think drinking uh, was a kind of, uh, uh, at least initially, was a kind of outlet, a way to relax. And he'd have to go to these, when a producer's invited into a party, he'd have to go to these parties, in a sense, politic, in a way that he really didn't like. And I think so, he started 
drinking a little bit more to to sort of cope and relax and 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 be a little bit more easygoing at these parties uh, and to relieve the stress. He could drink all night. Uh, you know, he was still a, a pretty young man uh, in into his forties, and he could show up uh, after all night drinking on the set in 1943 doing a film like The North Star, another Lewis Milestone film, and have a hangover for sure. But I mean, he had a photographic memory, and so th- there was no problem. I mean, they didn't have to delay production for him or anything. But even by the time he does Best Years of Our Lives, 1946, he shows up and he does a couple scenes. It's not that he doesn't know his lines, but there's something wrong with the timing. William Wyler, the director, says to him, Dana, uh, what you did is good, but it's not your best work. He said, Anytime you wake up in the morning and you feel like that, he said, it would be better, and he said this kindly, you know, be better not to show up. Uh, Dana mentioned this many, many years later uh, in an interview, and he was impressed, and he said after that he stopped drinking, and you know, for the the rest of that picture, because he thought Weiler handled that so diplomatically. But it was beginning to be a problem in the late 40s and early 50s, not in not in the sense of a Marilyn Monroe problem where you're late for production. That almost never happened with Dana Andrews, but simply that uh, uh, everything surrounding him became a, a kind of a problem, and and uh, Weiler didn't use him uh, again. For example, uh, it became more difficult for him to get certain roles. And then, coupled with the drinking, in the late 40s, what happens? We get the advent of Gregory Peck and Marlon Brando, uh, actors like that, and then a whole new generation of actors. And that also puts a kind of pressure on Dana, because he plays very sort of, think of this, he's, he's, even when he's playing a con man, as I said, there's this kind of nobility, there's this kind of decency in him. But there isn't this sort of quirky, almost malevolent power that you get in, you know, Marlon Brando. You know, when when he's asked and playing when he's playing a character one film and someone says, What are you rebelling against? And what does Brando say? What do you got? <laughs> you know. Well that that's not Dana Andrews. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dana Andrews is the gentleman hero. And the and the vogue for the Ronald Coleman gentleman hero by the end of the nineteen forties is over. So Dana drinks. What's interesting about Dana's drinking is he doesn't become a mean drunk and he doesn't become a self-pitying drunk. His family can never remember him saying, oh, woe is me, nobody wants me anymore. Because, of course, although by, after uh, he makes Elephant Walk in 1954, he, he, he and Peter Finch and Elizabeth Taylor are, are together in that film. After 1954, he doesn't really have an, an A-list picture, a leading man role again. But he sees that as an almost natural, organic development in a way. Of course, there's going to be a new generation of actors. He hasn't. He had an incredible perspective on this. Plus, he was still employable, even with his drinking. Uh, he uh, only in one case, a, t- a terrible film, a remake of Melville's novel *Typey*, uh, *Treasure Island*, where he there, actually he was sued because he held up production. That that was the nadir of of his career in 1958, uh, and he he 
uh, he does recover from that ultimately, but but he was definitely uh, on the decline, uh, and and there was no way, given the changing Hollywood industry, uh, the motion picture companies losing their chain of theaters, there was no, there was no studio to back him in that same way. Uh, what precipitated his recovery, and how did his alcoholism become a defining characteristic of his public persona? That's a good question. Um, what happened was, uh, after this incident with this film where he actually held up production, he was a consummate professional. That was so mortifying to him. He quit drinking between 1958 and 1964. He, uh, he went to Broadway and starred in Two for the Seesaw. Uh, Henry Fonda had begun that role and left after a year, and then Dana took it over, co-starring with Anne Bancroft, got wonderful reviews. That's another missed opportunity. Uh, he, he did, there was another play, Captain from Kings, but it was a flop, not due to him, but simply uh, critics felt that the script or the, the play was not good enough. Uh, he, he did a lot of television work uh, in the early 1960s, sober. Uh, and then in 1964, his first son by his first marriage, David, dies of a brain aneurysm. Uh, and David was only 29. And uh, it just completely uh, uh, devastated Dana. And he did start to drink again, probably worse than ever between 64 and 69. Somehow he did a lot of stage work in that period. Uh, and how he got through, he did he did The Odd Couple, for example. I, it's Even his children are hard put to explain how their drinking father you know, went on day after day, night after night, in performances of that play and many other plays as well. But ultimately what happens uh, is that his wife Mary, who is, is she's just his rock, is, is she's a wonderful she's a wonderful actress she was a wonderful actress in her own right uh, uh, but a wonderful uh, student of the theater and and historian of the theater really and she finally says to him uh, in 1969 uh, I'm leaving uh, I cannot stay married to you because he was at the point of delirium tremens he was at the point of the doctor telling him, you know, if you keep drinking, you will die. Uh, and so she left. Uh, and he was uh, nursed back to health by a family servant of theirs, Minnie. Uh, and w when Mary left him, that, that was a shock, uh, because I don't think he could conceive of living without his wife. Uh, and he wasn't going to live if he kept drinking because he wasn't going to have his wife. And although he had gone to, you know, many sanitariums, he had tried Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, various therapies, nothing seemed to work. And ultimately he quit drinking the same way he quit smoking. He just quit and never, you know, uh, took another cigarette or another drink for the rest of his life. And what happened was, uh, I, and I think this became part of his persona, and part of probably what, what made him stick to it, so to speak, is he, he made this a public story. 
uh, during the Nixon in- administration, John Volpe, who was uh, the Department of Transportation, uh, Dana wanted to make uh, commercials, public service commercials against drinking and driving. And he made two really very famous commercials because no no one of his stature in, in Hollywood, certainly the Hollywood industry, and there were plenty of alcoholics there. Uh, no one did what Dana did, which was he went on television and said, you know, the, the script read, I was a former alcoholic. And he looked at the script, he said, no, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And so in the commercial, he says, I am an alcoholic. You know, I've stopped drinking. He said, but when I was drinking and behind the wheel of a car, I was no more competent to drive a car than my five-year-old grandson was. You know, essentially he was saying he could have killed somebody when he was drinking and driving. And in fact, it's, a, it's on the public record. He, he was sued a few times. He did get into accidents. No one was hurt, fortunately. Uh, but that really could have happened to him. Uh, and then to make it even more public, so to speak, uh, Ralph Edwards, who did this famous This Is Your Life series, uh, began his program uh, about Dana talking about him as being a recovering alcoholic. And, and then when they, when they, Dana's interviewed on the program, he talks quite openly and frank, frankly about his drinking. What do you see as his legacy? I think his legacy is, of course, his, his great performances. Uh, I think his legacy is uh, um, all tied up, really, with that decade of the 1940s. He did some good work in the 1950s and some Fritz Lang movies, and he did some, some very good television work as well, including on Playhouse 90, which to this day so far, uh, not all of the Playhouse 90 performances, because it was live TV and they did do some recording, but... Maybe it's somewhere in a vault, but so far no one's been able to find his performances. I think his legacy really is uh, this this notion of uh, the male hero, the gentleman hero, the the uh, uh, the hero who has his flaws, uh, but has this fundamental decency. And the word that that I I think of uh, about Nate, uh, Dana Andrews, both the person and the actor, is is the nobility of his performances. When I wrote to Norman Lloyd, who's almost 100 years old now, he was in two films with Dana Andrews. Uh, he was in uh, A Walk in the Sun and a, uh, a film, actually, it was a flop, a comedy, No Minor Vices. But uh, when I, when I uh, approached Norman Lloyd, uh, he wrote me and he said, Dana was one of nature's noblemen. Uh, and then when I wrote him again saying, I'm coming to California, I want to interview you, he said, oh, Dana was a prince among men. And that's not hyperbole. Uh, that, that, there's that genuineness uh, that comes out in the screen. And, of course, so many of us who either become fascinated with Hollywood or even fans of certain actors and so on, you know, it's the old sort of saw about biography. People, some people dislike biography because they read about Raymond Burr or Marilyn Monroe or whoever it is, and they, say, and they find out, oh, well, the stories they believed in weren't true. Uh, and that's the thing about uh, Dana Andrews. He was the genuine article. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today about Hollywood Enigma. Any idea who you'll be writing about next? Oh yes, yeah. It's it's. Uh, I actually interrupted the Dana Andrews biography. I was uh, working on uh, a biography of Amy Lowell, uh, 
And uh, I'm well into that. <laughs> Actually, I interrupted Amy, Amy Lowell twice. I have a biography of Sylvia Plath that's going to be appearing in late January. Uh, but Amy Lowell will be appearing probably about a year from now, and everyone's going to wonder, well, how did he do that? <laughs> well, in, in, in fact, I've been working off and on on, on Amy Lowell for about six years. Oh, wow. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. I've been talking today with Carl Rollison about his new book, Hollywood Enigma, Dana Andrews. I'm Olay Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>